Welcome to the Complete Leader Podcast, giving leaders the tools and information they need to grow and change their world. Now here's your host, Dale Dixon. The Complete Leader Podcast, Conscience and Character. Hi, I'm your host, Dale Dixon, alongside Ron Price. Ron, great to be with you today. Dale, it's good to be with you again. I've been looking forward to this conversation. As have I. So we're now part two, and this is part of a series that, and this episode will most likely stand on its own. But if you've been listening to the podcast consecutively, we've been talking about this idea of leaders as thinkers and thinking more deeply about thinking. And so today we're conscience and character. How did we get to this point? Yeah, so we don't normally review the past po- podcast so much, but I think because of this journey that we're on, it's worth doing it. We started talking about the fact that we don't think deeply enough, often enough, that we're in too much of an instant society and that we need to spend more time going deeper in our reflection. And this led us to talk about different kinds of thinking. We first talked about different thinking tendencies that some of us tend to think more about people, other people more about tasks, that some of us are very responsive to problems, other are more, others are more concerned about process, and that we have a lot of different natural tendencies that in reality, no two brains are the same. And then uh, we also talked about how we have different kinds of thinking skills. Some of us are really great at problem solving, others are good at creativity, some are good at futuristic thinking, Others are better at analyzing the past. So we've got different kinds of thinking skills. And then we talked about different kinds of creativity in our thinking. So that's why I think this is such a rich subject, Dale. And from there, we talked about the relationship, at least conceptually, between logic and emotion in our thinking. How does critical thinking or logical thinking come into play? And when does emotion come into play? And how does emotion create biases that may help us or may hurt us in our thinking? And then this led us to take a breath (laughs) into beginning to talk about consciousness and then opening the topic of conscience. So consciousness is an endowment that's unique to human beings. And it's about our ability to be aware, to think about me, thinking about me, thinking about me. And as far as we know, we're the only part of creation that can do that. And then that eventually leads us. Consciousness is not about awareness, but it's also about choice. We can choose how to think or how to act or how to relate. And that leads us into this discussion of conscience which we defined as developing the ability to discern the difference between good and bad, or I I guess we could say good and evil. So that's what got us to this point today. Fantastic. So let's, I'm thinking about, we've got conscience, consciousness, uh, and it's easy as we're driving down the road, listening to a podcast to start getting all of that muddled in one's mind and just sitting here, it can get muddled. So do you have some examples, um, from stories and and things that, that you've been taught parents taught when it comes to this idea of developing our conscience? Yes. Now, first of all, our conscience is, is built through our consciousness. So as our conscious, our awareness of, uh, of ourselves and of what's happening around us grows, this is what gives us the raw material, so to speak, of to develop our conscience. 
And when we're young, when we're children, we learn a lot of it from our parents. We, we learn it by them teaching us the difference between right and wrong about going into the street or not going into the street, about stopping our bicycle at intersections, things like that. But we also learn it through a lot of the stories that they tell us. They can be stories from their own life, or they can be uh, children's stories. For instance, uh, I remember my parents reading and my grandparents reading to me Peter Rabbit. Or I remember them reading different Dr. Seuss stories. And those were all, all those stories had a message that taught us something about the difference between right and wrong. With our older children, as they were growing up, we read to them Chronicles of Narnia, seven different books that went on forever. And even though it seemed like we were never going to get there, I look back on that as with very fond memories because it was where we had these meaningful conversations about the difference between right and wrong. And then with our younger kids, as they were, as, as we were going through stories with them, one of the things that they loved doing was we listened to this audio series called uh, Adventures in Odyssey. And it, just as an interesting side note, Dale, years later, when we recorded the audible version of The Complete Leader, the fellow who produced it for us was also the fellow who'd been the producer for Adventures in Odyssey. So it's, it's interesting what a small world we live in. But these are all stories that are developing our sense or our ability to discern between good and bad or between good and evil. And for some of us, we go beyond those stories that we learned growing up. And in uh, our later high school years or in college or for some of us in postgraduate studies, we go deeper and deeper and deeper into studying this idea of right and wrong. It's often referred to at this point as the study of ethics, which is actually a, a part or an expression of the social sciences as opposed to the natural sciences. And most of that learning about conscience happens through a deeper uh, understanding of more complex literature and through debate and through discussions, because we begin to understand that there's a lot of nuance to right and wrong. And this development of our conscience becomes more complex as we continue to study it. Now, of course, not all of us do that. A lot of us just develop sort of a enough of an understanding of right and wrong, good and bad, so that we can navigate adult life. And unless we're thrown with perplexing circumstances, it's sort of common sense is what we end up calling it ends up being good enough. So toward the end of the last podcast, you teased this word uh, of axiology and said we were going to look at this topic through the lens of axiology. That is not necessarily a word we hear often in language today. So let's dive into axiology, what it means, and, and give folks that opening definition. Yes. So Dale, that this, this word usually comes up for people who are in either college or postgraduate work, and in, in particular people who are studying philosophy. The word axiology comes from two Greek words, axios and ology. And axios means worth or value, and ology, the knowledge of. So it's the knowledge of worth or value. And it's one of the five major branches of philosophy and they describe it as the study of value or the study of another way that we might say it in more street language would be the study of good and bad, the study of understanding what good and bad are. 
And uh, what fascinated me and what initially got my interest in it, because I didn't study it in college, was that one of the assessments that we use to understand people is an assessment provided by TTI Success Insights called the Acumen Capacities Index. And it's essentially uh, an assessment that helps us to get a quick look at how people instinctively sort out good and bad, how they make judgments between the two, but unconsciously, more than consciously. And um, the way that they do it is they have people organize a list of 18 items. And these 18 items are varying degrees of good and varying degrees of bad. Uh, uh, actually, I would describe them as, as virtues to good to bad, to evil. It's actually, I would break it down into four categories. So examples of the virtues of the good, some of them a lover's embrace is something that is perceived as virtuous. Or a life of adventure is something as good, or a new car. And then some of the examples of things that go from bad to evil include things like a car wreck or a misunderstanding down into evil, which would be poisoning the city's water supply or torturing a person to death. So there are 18 of these items that you have to organize from the most good to the most bad or the most value to the least value. And when I, I, I first was very puzzled by this as an assessment, and I began to go looking for where it came from, and I discovered that the methodology of it and the original assessment was created by a fellow named Robert Hartman, who wanted to move axiology out of the field of philosophy into the field of science. And of course, this was very controversial. And there are people today who still don't like the idea that he wanted to do that. Let's talk a little more about Robert Hartman, because he's got a fascinating story, backstory. Yeah, so Robert Hartman was born in 1910. He was born in Germany, in Berlin. Actually, uh, coincidentally, he was born on the emperor's birthday across the street from the Ministry of War. Now, that might not seem significant at all. But as a young boy, uh, his uncle went off to World War I, and his uncle was killed in World War I. And uh, this had a profound impact on Robert Hartman. He, as a young boy, moving into his teenage years, he really struggled with, why did my uncle have to die? in a war. What was the purpose of the war? What was this war about? And at the same time as this, when he went to school, he was taught to recite an oath every morning, similar to the way Americans would recite the um, Pledge of Allegiance. He was taught to recite a pledge or an oath every morning that included, I was born to die for Germany. And this further agitated him. He, he just didn't understand this. And so he decided that he was going to study law. He figured that by studying law, he would develop an understanding of how to make these judgments about what's right and wrong. What he discovered in studying law, and he eventually became an uh, assistant district judge in Berlin, was that he, he discovered that law didn't really tell him what was right and wrong. Law was just an interpretation of what people wanted us to follow in the way that we lived. And he discovered in court that the law was amoral. And what, what he meant by this and what he wrote by this in his autobiography is that good people would use the law for good purposes and bad people would use the law for bad purposes. But the law was just a tool. It wasn't a final judge. It was just a tool that was utilized. And of course, it's developed over time as people pass new laws or as precedents are set. 
And it was during this time that uh, Hitler was coming to power in Germany. Eventually, Robert Hartman had to escape, literally, from Germany because he was on Hitler's hit list. And that eventually brought him to the United States, where he decided, maybe I'll be able to di- I'll, I'll be able to discover what I'm looking for around good and bad by studying philosophy. So he got a PhD in philosophy, and he later taught philosophy at Ohio State and at MIT, and he eventually settled uh, as the chair of excellence in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Tennessee. At this time, he also became a fairly well-known consultant, and he had a big impact in some companies like Nationwide Insurance and Sears Roebuck and Company. He was also one of the people who was a catalyst for the development of profit sharing as a concept of sharing the rewards of success with employees. And what his academic studies took him to was he decided that he wanted to try to develop axiology in more of a formal way so that it would become more of a science than just a philosophy. So what, what, what was he doing? What do I mean by saying that? Well, he looked at science and the natural sciences, and he began to recognize that science is built on a formal logic structure. We call it mathematics. So this formal logic structure, which didn't always exist, is what opened the door for a lot of major advancements in the natural sciences. An example of this would be that mathematics is what gave us chemistry, which gave us the ability to create pharmaceuticals that have a predictability in the way that they uh, affect us, in the way that they interact with the human body. Before that, we didn't have chemistry. Before that, we had alchemy, which was where people would develop these uh, formulations, which sometimes were referred to as magic. So you had people who were alchemists or people who were um, witch doctors or people who played with chemicals and it was sort of hit and miss. Sometimes these things worked, sometimes they didn't. But mathematics gave the ability to develop chemistry, which gave us pharmaceuticals. And in the same way, you can look at something, for instance, mathematics led to astronomy, which gave us the ability to measure the stars. And, and when you look at the natural sciences, you begin to realize that they are all based on this formal logic structure that we call mathematics. So Robert Hartman said, if I could come up with a formal logic structure for the social sciences that did the same thing as mathematics did for the natural sciences, maybe I could develop a science of axiology, a science of good and bad. And of course, it could have application across all the social sciences, politics, sociology, anthropology, even business management, it could have a very profound impact on the development of human consciousness if I could develop this logic structure. So even though Robert Hartman loved literature, and he writes about it often, he didn't want to just limit this sense of developing conscience to our understanding that comes from literature. He wanted to develop a new tool for developing our conscience that he called formal axiology. So it's a formal logic structure that works like mathematics, but it works that in the area of conscience and ethics and everything around the social sciences. So this was pretty profound. And in fact, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, I believe it was. 
but um, it was too late. He passed away in nine. No, no, I'm sorry. It was 1974. He passed away in 1973, and they don't give the Nobel Peace Prize posthumously. You have to be alive. But it was because of this work that he got nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. So you've you've taken us over the span of decades in a man's life and work and and what he's done. Let's talk about the structure of logic that he created and and how that applies. So break the break the math down for us on on how we can better understand this as it relates to conscience. Right. So so math is built on a set of rules that are absolutes so that we can all agree on them and we can use them, therefore, in an effective way. And of course, those rules begin simple and then they become more and more complex. The more complex those rules become, the more practical they are, the more things that we can discover or create because of those rules. So what do you think the beginning rules are for mathematics, Dale? What would you guess? Okay, I'm a communication major, and the big joke is we do that because we didn't do well with math. <laughs> so I know I've heard the rules. Well, you think about what does a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old learn, because that's when we begin to learn math. What do they learn first? Well, they're going to learn addition and then subtraction and then multiplication yeah, a, and you're division. Get, you're, get, you're getting a little advanced. <laughs> they actually begin by learning numbers. Numbers, okay. And then they learn counting. So these are things that we take for granted, but we had to learn them at some point. We're actually developing our consciousness around logic by learning numbers, one, two, three, four. And I have grandkids now, and some of them are, are quite young. So when I get with them, I'll say, have, have you learned your numbers? Oh, yeah. Oh, can you count? And they'll say, one, two, five, seven, ten. Well, they've learned their numbers, but they're still learning how to count. And uh, with I have a grandson right now. His name's Everett, and I'm going to be seeing him uh, toward the end of this week. And, of course, I love all my grandkids, but I love how excited he gets when he teaches me what he's learned about counting. So now he's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, but then he gets lost after 10. And we want to get him to his 20s and his 30s and then his 100s. We take this for granted, but this is learning a logic structure. So in the same way, we have to learn a logic structure if we're going to learn what Robert Hartman created in formal axiology. So the first rule, I think of it as like learning numbers. The first rule, it's really the axiom on which, or the, the statement of truth or of absolute truth on which he built everything that he did in formally, formal axiology. He said, a thing is good to the extent that it fulfills its concept. Now, okay, One we got to think about that for a while. Yes. A thing is good to the extent that it fulfills its concept. To us, this sounds fairly simple. A thing is good to the extent, you could, another way you could say it would be a thing is good to the extent that it fulfills its definition. But this was actually quite profound in the world of philosophy. I'm not going to go into all of that. When we teach on this, we go a little bit deeper. But this goes all the way back to Plato, who said, we don't really know how to define good. And um, he said, I'm going to write about that someday, but he never did. And then uh, through the centuries, philosophers have tried to tackle this, and they've moved it a little bit forward. And it was Robert Hartman who first proposed that he finally had a definition of good to the extent that something fulfills its 
concept or its definition. So uh, an example of this would be, how do we define a good car? Well, the beginning step is, what is a car? What is the concept of a car? So we might say, well, a car is something that carries one or more people. We now have cars that only carry one person, so we'd have to say one or more. At some point, we might say it's carrying too many people, so now we're going to call it a van or a bus or something else. A car runs on the ground or runs on roads, and at least in today's definition, we would say that a car has three or four wheels. Maybe our definition of a car is going to change later, our concept of a car. But just to give you an example, there are certain fundamental absolutes that we say are necessary in order for us to call something a car. You told me before we started our conversation today that, that you came on your motorcycle today. Well, why do we call it a motorcycle, not a car? It has certain features or a concept that makes us say that's a motorcycle and this over here is a car. Now, what, what, what Hartman was saying is the beginning of goodness is just whether or not you can say that something fulfills its concept. And, of course, we could have a longer discussion about how far can we go in the definition of the difference between a car and a motorcycle, and that would be interesting but this is the beginning. But then the second rule, so our first rule is the thing is good to the extent that it fulfills its concept. This might not make as much sense to us right now, but it makes more sense later. Our second rules are actually three ways that we can define that thing and its goodness. So we can go deeper in understanding its goodness. We've just covered the first one, the absolute. It either is a car or it's not a car. The second way we can define its goodness is we can compare it with other cars. So now I might develop a list of ways that I could compare this car with this car. So I might think of its color, its size. I might think of its uh, horsepower. I might think of the number of additional features it has. We go into what kind of uh, sound system it has, and we might go into how well it tracks our mileage. And there, there's just almost an infinite number of ways that we could compare these two cars with each other. And for maybe 90% of them, we would agree on which car is the better car. And then there may be 10% of them where it becomes a matter of preference. It becomes a matter of opinion. So this is a comparative way of measuring goodness by comparing the car with other cars. You could do this with any object or anything. You could compare two people. You could compare two ideas. So Hartman is saying that this is the second way that we define goodness. And then the third way that we define goodness becomes much more personal, and it, it becomes how do I think about my relationship to this car. And I might develop a certain affinity or a certain connection to this car that I don't develop to this car. So when my parents, when I was growing up, my parents and, and their generation, the car that everybody developed this special affinity toward was a Cadillac. Back then, a Cadillac or maybe a Lincoln Continental, these were considered the greatest representation of prestige and status. In my generation, the car that sort of emerged that way was the Lexus. Now, not everybody's going to agree with this, but in general, if you had a Lexus, it represented something more than just the features, because in reality, you could get the exact same features in a Toyota. 
but the Lexus had an identity to it that went beyond what you got from the Toyota. And maybe today in the next generation, like my son's generation, maybe it's become the Tesla. So you can see that this is not just a comparison of features, but it's something that goes beyond features that has a sort of a unique connection to you. So to review these first two rules, and we're head, this is eventually going to lead us to conscience, but these first two rules are a thing is good to the extent that it fulfills its concept. And the second rule is there are three different ways we can think about good where we add more richness to its concept absolute, it either is or is not what we are saying that it is, comparative, how we compare it to other things that are the same concept, and then what we call unique or connective, or Robert Hartman actually used the word intrinsic, how we individually connect and relate to that car, what makes it special to us. So this is the beginning of the rules of formal axiology. Now, I'd like to go further, but I'm afraid that this might be all we can handle today. So let me just say one more thing about this concept of goodness, Dale. The more that we can develop our definition of good in these three categories, the greater or the richer a concept we're creating, now we're beginning to create the beginnings of conscience in discerning degrees of goodness. And eventually it could be degrees of badness as well. So let me just uh, use an example of being a father. So our, our minimal definition of a father is somebody who has, who's responsible for having one or more children. But now if I begin to compare fathers with each other, I could say, well, a better father would be a father who cares for his children a father who's concerned for his children's future, a father who invests in his children, a father who teaches his children right and wrong, a father who demonstrates love for his children, we would say probably unconditional love, we can begin to develop a richer and richer and richer definition of what it means to be a good father. And then finally, we could say, but what about my father? And you have a relationship with your father that I could never have. And my father has passed away, but I still have a relationship with the concept of my father. As a matter of fact, over Memorial Day weekend, I took some time to write about what I thought about my father. And I ended up, I'm at this age where I'm trying to capture things before I begin to lose my memory. I wrote five pages of what I thought about my father and a lot of those things, they had to do with the fact that he was my father and I'm his son, but they then talked about the different ways that he was a better father than I might consider some other fathers. And they finally ended up with what is very, very precious, sacred to me about my relationship with him and how who he was has had a large impact in making me who I am today. So it's an, a demonstration where... This first rule, a thing is good to the extent that it fulfills its concept, it sounds very simple, but the deeper and the richer that we go with that, the more we develop the ability to discern or recognize or be aware of goodness and therefore to make better choices. So this is the beginning of our journey into formal axiology, which eventually is going to take us not only to conscience, but eventually it's going to take us through conscience into character.
Okay. You've given us a lot to chew on and think about. And it's important to remember that this is the beginning logic structure. We're learning our numbers in this process. It is very, it is, it, and, and it, when you first start learning your numbers, you don't realize all the ways you're going to use them throughout your life. We take it for granted today. We use math all the time. And even those who have communications majors <laughs> still use math all the time. And that's what I discovered in formal axiology is when you learn the rules and you become, they become second nature to you, they change the way you see everything. This is maybe one of the most profound discoveries of my adult life. And it's what I think gives us the ability to take conscience and character to higher levels than I ever thought possible. What Bob Hartman wanted to do was he wanted this to be the next major step forward in mankind. And I actually think he gave us the seeds to do it. I don't know if we'll take advantage of them, but that's what I'm trying to do with my life. Mm. Fantastic. Well, we're on this journey together, and uh, thanks for leading the way on that. This is uh, just one of the hundreds of pieces of material that are available on the completeleader.org if you're on this leadership journey as well. So you have the book. There is the website, the podcast. There are video series. You can sign up for weekly emails, and there's so much. It's such a rich place to grow in your leadership ability. So um, Ron would love to hear from you. You can drop him an email. His email address, ron at price-associates.com, the website, thecompleteleader.org, and there you'll find a number of resources, and you can unlock with a, a membership. Do you want to talk more about the membership opportunity? Yes. We, Subscription? Yeah, I, I have a really big, hairy, audacious goal. I want to build the Complete Leader community globally. I want to create a place where people with similar values can connect with each other can help each other, can contribute. And we do that through the Complete Leader community. So people can go to the website, thecompleteleader.org. They can sign up to be a part of the community. It's a very modest annual fee for them to become a part of the community. And based on that, uh, we have three live events that they can participate in every month online. Uh, periodically, we're having live events in person. We have one uh, coming up although this dates this podcast a little bit, but September 21st to the 23rd of 2021, we're going to be having an in-person event where we take a deep dive into developing our leadership cap uh, capacities, strategy and optimizing strategy and growing innovation and um, all kinds of resources that we want to give to people who are members of the Complete Leader community. And the reason for it, Dale, is because I believe if we help to grow great leaders, that it's great leaders who will change the world. Absolutely. Thecompleteleader.org is the place. This is the Complete Leader podcast, everything you need to become a high-performing leader. Thank you so much, and we will continue this conversation on the next episode. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Complete Leader Podcast. Find more online, thecompleteleader.org.